Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, where this week we'll be taking some of those tentative steps towards live performance, both amateur and professional, in Castle Blaney and the People's Park in Limerick City. Meanwhile, Jennifer Walsh makes a series of attempts to get to one of her own performances, and we begin this time with a little needlework. It's true that men have widely wielded the needle as tailors and couturiers, soldiers and sailors, making and mending garments without impairing their masculinity. But in Civvy Street there remained something marked about men who embroidered for fun. In his new book, Queering the Subversive Stitch, Men and the Culture of Needlework, Joseph McBrin explores the cultures of men with needles and how ideas of gender and needlework are sewn together. He talked to culture files Eleanor Flegg about another world of hidden stitches. This book is the first book to look at the history of men's engagement with needlework. And that is a long history. And my idea of the book was really to try and present a series of case studies or a series of ways of understanding it, which wasn't about establishing a canon. It was about maybe problematizing and unpacking some of the assumptions we have about needlework and its association with the feminine. The title comes from a long kind of debate with myself, and Rodziska Parker's 1984 book, The Subversive Stitch, is the starting point for anybody who wants to write about the history of embroidery or needlework more broadly. And it is an extraordinary book, which really is is about opening up how society constructs and shapes us and how cultural production is part of that, and how gender is quite malleable and quite constructed for you. But excluded from her discussion about the history of embroidery is that debate about, you know, people who identify as men or people who are born biologically and feel they they remain men. You know, there's kind of an exclusion of a whole area. So I thought there was an opportunity to, to kind of continue the discussion, not to answer it or to develop it or to add to it. It was just to continue that discussion. The one question people do ask me about the book is if I sew, and the answer to that is no, I don't. I grew up in a working class family. I'm of a certain age where people did repair and mend and and remake things. So my mother sewed. She didn't knit. She didn't. She didn't do needlework for pleasure. She would use sewing particularly to mend things. You know, so it was quite functional. But her mother, my maternal grandmother, um, was very skilled as a seamstress. And I think I grew up, you know, aware of it as a skill and very respectful of it as a skill and conscious of its economic value. But I was always puzzled as to its alignment with women. Growing up as a boy, I think it, it was always questionable that I was interested in it. I used to thread my mother's needle. I remember that when I was a child. But my sisters were not interested in it at all. So for me, it always felt like it wasn't biological destiny for a woman. You know, it was more to do with the social context in which they had to exist. My mother felt she had to repair things, so she had to sew. I suppose historically what I've uncovered is that gay men excluded um, from cultural production in in, uh, in a proper way 
uh, like women, you know, reduced being on the outside of, say, the art world, uh, would turn to things which were within their own orbit. So for women, I think historically what we've learned from books like The Subversive Stitch is the idea that women would turn to the domestic kind of realities of their existence and needlework was one of those. So it was a subversion of that. It became, you know, no longer a means to suppression but a, a tool for subversion. And I think for gay men, that also became a very powerful means of subversion. So what you find in certainly the 20th century is these elements of subcultural performance where almost like drag, you know, men would take elements of a, a sort of idealized femininity or a hyper femininity and perform those. So needlework in some ways fits into those discourses. But I think for straight men, it became more problematic because male identity is, is constantly under surveillance and constantly policed. It, it's so obviously unmasculine that it could only happen in certain contexts, like a lot of homosocial contexts where there weren't a lot of women like the Navy or the Army. You know, you'd, you'd get men there having to learn basic sewing skills right up until the mid-20th century to repair their kit. And they were given little needlework kits that historically in the British armour were, were called housewives. Of all the um, images in the book, there is one very striking one. It is a panel from the AIDS quilt, which is this huge undertaking which came about in the mid-1980s to commemorate um, those who had died of AIDS. And I just want to read you what it says on, on the panel. It says, My name is Dwayne Kearns per year. I was born on December 20, 1964. I was diagnosed with AIDS on September 7, 1984, at 4.45 p.m. I was 22 years old. Sometimes it makes me very sad. I made this panel myself. If you are reading it, I am dead. So the panel was made in 1988 by Perrier. He was from Texas, um, but it was made for a march in, in Washington, where a lot of people would make panels and, and bring them and, and display them. But some, some people who, who were diagnosed with AIDS, who were going to die, made their own panels. The panels are extraordinary to look at because they're designed in the shape of an average grave, about one metre by, by two, two metres. But the fact um, that it was made by this young man, and he was so aware of what was going to, to happen... tragedy is in every stitch and when Perrier was returning back to Dallas so he was going back to Texas from Washington he lost the panel but it was photographed in Washington and after he died his mother remade the panel and it was sent to the, um, the AIDS quilt organization is now integrated into the quilt and for me it was one of the running themes in the book that relationship between mothers and sons and I think as I started possibly talking um, about my own experience of growing up and watching my mother and my, my grandmother so and, and the powerful impact that had on in me, you know, making me think about skill, thinking about the value of labour, thinking about why we do things and the pleasure of things. 
it struck me as, as, as a theme that ran through, and a thread, I suppose, that ran through a lot of the case studies in the book. And this proved to be one that really struck me. And what I felt was I wanted to give some space to this because it's an image which is constantly reproduced. The, the, the Perrier um, panel is reproduced so many times and never ever talked about and there's no discussion ever about that relationship between the mother and son and that that very powerful um, relationship that many of us are, are fortunate enough to have felt in our lives. Joseph McBrin there talking to Eleanor Flegg and queering the subversive stitch Men and the Culture of Needlework by Joseph McBrin is published by Bloomsbury. When the pandemic began, we quickly understood what the suspension of live performance would mean for everyone who made a living from putting on a show. But away from the professional spotlight, the groups who did it just for the love of it have also been deprived of everything amateur drama brings them, not least the satisfaction of sharing their work in person. The Castle Blaney players have suffered the plight of many in amateur drama around the island, but like others, they've uncovered inventive ways to continue their calling. Culture Files Anya Gallagher spoke to Pauline Clark and David Main, both longtime members of Castle Blaney Players, to hear about their pandemic season. Very often you literally have maybe a couple of hours before you do the show to actually build the set and then sometimes you have to take it down immediately after the show after the show as well. So often the actors themselves build the set and then an hour or two before the show, we, we get ourselves ready, do the show, and then we help pack it all back up again. And, and so it's a very, very action-packed day, The whole, whatever day we're doing the show. My name's David Main. I am an actor. I have trained as an actor. When I left school, I did a three-year BA in performing arts in Dundalk IT. And then I went on to do a master's in classical acting in uh, Central School of Speech and Drama in London. I wanted to really bring that back over to Ireland, you know, although it's, it's sort of been a, a rough balance between work and doing the acting. And one of the best outlets for that for me was actually the Blaney Players because it's my local group. I got involved with them probably around about the time Pauline did as well, about 10 years ago. My name is Pauline Clark. I'm part of the Castle Blaney Players, but I do tend to float between other drama societies too. I have been a member almost 10 years, I'd say. The festival circuit starts usually around the end of February. I think the last week of February is usually the first few, and then they go through the whole month of March, and then a few sort of towards the end sort of finish up in and around April. And then during the summer, then they, they do their deliberations, and then towards the end of summer is when they have their the All-Ireland Finals, as they call them. Okay, so judging by those dates that you were mentioning, um, you've had two years then of quietness i suppose yes <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> how has the company managed throughout the pandemic well it's been extremely quiet like everybody else and i do feel sorry for a lot of places and a lot of um, theater companies that you've spent all these years building up your actors your the skills and then it's nearly two years kind of taken out of that we don't know yet. There's a lot up in the air at the moment, but we recently did a recording there in Anthus with the Anthus Art Project, which there, if you look up on YouTube, not just drama, music, people doing monologues, their own poems, and a lot of original stuff. So it's starting to feel like we're getting somewhere and the excitement is starting to build up. But it's all so risky. 
Are you not afraid? Look, of course I am. But I have to, to take risks. With a theatre company like ours, everyone has nine to five jobs, you know, so it just made it very, very difficult to keep any plans that we had already made in place. And obviously, because the whole COVID situation was such a question mark, no one was really able to make any decisions. So everyone just sort of agreed, well, the best thing to do at the moment is just nothing, really, you know. What it did do, though, the whole country sort of became very creative in very unusual ways, you know. So, like, a number of people in our in our uh, theatre company have sat down and written stuff over the, the last year. Uh, as we've mentioned there, the Intus uh, Artists' Room project, it allowed some of us to put forward our own work, you know. Like, I myself wrote a, a spoken word piece, which I performed as part of that project, and another member of ours, Francis Gerard Duffy, he performed... Um, a spoken word Was piece as well that he had put together. Was there ever armistice or just a momentary truce? It's great because it's actually giving us a platform in a very dismal time where everything seems very closed off still. You walk our streets now in the footsteps of shadows yet to live and like Pompeii, you marvel at the exhibition laid out before you. We are very lucky here in County Monaghan. We have two theatres. We have the Garage Theatre up in, Mo in Monaghan and we have Aethys Theatre in Casablaney, and we are extremely lucky, and they cooperate with each other and they collaborate with each other as well. At the end of um, April, I also did a monologue up there in, in the Garage Theatre, when that was practically the first bit I did all over COVID. So it just feels like we're getting back the there, and be uh, now I want more. And for him, the next generation... Start your homework there, Paddy. I'll have your tea ready for you in a few minutes. Well, how's Paddy? All right. It's a bit of a double-edged sword because, you know, everything's slowly coming back to normality, thank God. But it's very difficult because a lot of people have moved or are trying to move more online because of COVID. You know, even if COVID does leave, it's going to leave a very deep scar on how not just this industry, but every industry works. You know, like face masks and social distancing are probably going to be around for a long, long time. So that's going to really affect the theatres. But unfortunately, the whole point of theatre and the whole point of going to see a show is that you're physically interacting with the characters on stage, with the people on stage. You feel the room, you feel everyone else enjoying the show with you. And that carries, it just creates a mood that you just can't get sitting in the cinema or even watching a live recording on uh, that's being streamed from a theatre. You just don't get the same buzz, the same high from it. And that's one of the big driving forces, I think, that's going to get shows back into the theatre. So it, it's going to be hard to sort of picture theatre coming back to its glory days again. But um, I do think that we need to we need to try and fight for it a little bit, come up with more creative ways of keeping the social distancing, but also trying to bring it back to what it was before. You know, we uh, as a company were talking about there before is we're going to try and do something along the lines of more street art performing in the street, because that's stuff that people can come and watch. It's going to be a bit of a we'll wait and see mixed with a bit of experimenting with this, that and the other to see what we can what we can do, you know. Yeah, it's funny because theatre has such a strong idea for everyone, like the theatre, a dark space, lines of seats, a stage. But yeah, as you say, maybe the way to go for the next year or two is to bring it outdoors and be a bit more experimental with that. That's going to be a great opportunity for us to try and do something like that because it will bring back the tourism 
It'll bring back our ability to basically do theatre again in, on a more community level. We are the whispers. We are hell's fire. We are the new children. Castle Blaney players Pauline Clark and David Main there talking to Anya Gallagher. And as of now, the All-Ireland One-Act Drama Finals will go ahead in Ennis this December under new COVID rules. reasons why you might not want to head into a theatre this week. But how about we just focus on the weather? Without wanting to jinx it, Limerick's Lime Tree Theatre and Bell Table could hardly have a better moment to open Waiting for Poirot, their knockabout, out-and-about production in the People's Park in the city. Set in the Ireland of 1925, the play repopulates the park with a bestry of ghosts and characters, including some old IRA men, a group of travelling players and possibly a murderer. Culture Files' Louise McMahon walked in the sun and shade of a preview at the People's Park and met writer Mike Finn. The gate to the People's Park in Limerick City opens. It's 7.30pm of a Saturday. A procession of musicians and actors and ticket holders bellow in from Perry Square. I'm standing to the left by colourful bunting and fairy lights. The sun is splitting the benches. Every chronicle for a truffance, later for two pence, and if you can't read, I'll read it to you for half pence. And faces, pure limerick faces, pass by. Ah, there's young Maloney, the tenor. The lads from Hyde Road and Gary Owen, Mrs O'Regan, the Honans, the O'Brien sisters, the Breens, how are you? My grandfather, your grandmother, your dad, my dad, the decades of Limerick people who passed by, young, old and in spirit. The park was alive that day in the sun. I was there to meet with playwright Mike Finn, who told me all about Waiting for Poirot, a play that is set in and performed in the People's Park in Limerick City. Yeah, the play is, it's a comedy. Um, It's set in 1925 here in the People's Park. A travelling theatre company called Madame Montague's Travelling Theatre and Electric Cinematograph have come to Limerick to do a, a murder mystery play called Murder at the Red Barn which was a real play and was a really famous melodrama back in the 1800s and the early 20th century. To a certain extent, the People's Park is another character in in the play. It's just a beautiful park that doesn't get used perhaps as often as it ought to for events like this. The audience actually meet at the bell table, which of course is only about five minutes from here, and that's where the tickets are checked and so on, and the COVID protocols are gone through. And then they come up here kind of in procession with some of the actors performing with them. 
the first scene starts in the bandstand, which is just here behind us. Then we move over there to a tree stump where there's a second scene and there's another scene further on. It's a bit of a chase and it all finishes up in the bandstand again. Why, Squire Corden comes here this very night. He makes merry with us every year at harvest time. Well then, tonight, Squire Corden, I shall have my revenge. Kind of a whirlwind kind of tour of the of the park as well. So for people who haven't been here before or perhaps people who haven't been here in a long time, it's an opportunity to also enjoy the park. Is there a mist on my... Just after the play starts, there's a real murder. What can you tell us about And so there are two slightly incompetent policemen who are looking to investigate it, but it turns out that the famous inspector, Hercule Poirot, is due in Limerick the following night to give a lecture, and so they're told by their bosses to wait for him to come and he'll take over. Does he come? Does he not? There's a kind of a waiting game, and then they decide they're going to investigate the murder themselves. Travelling Theatre and Electric Cinematograph is one of the most prestigious company on these islands. Yes, no, we have performed in front of the Duke of Wellington. It's a murder mystery, but it's principally a comedy. I think if you were to look very closely at the murder mystery, it mightn't stand up. I'm not a mystery writer, I'm a comedy writer. So it's a, it kind of, a, it's, it's taking the mickey out of the genre, I guess. I the genesis of this goes back, gosh, almost two years, well, a year and a half anyway, certainly during the first lockdown, the first summer of lockdown. The idea was pitched, I think, to Limerick City Council by the uh, Bell Table Arts Centre and Honest Arts. Now, it didn't get the green light back then, but it was submitted to the Arts Council earlier this year and we got some money, so, so here we are doing it. And the cast is a combination of kind of old hands like Miles Breen and Gene Rooney, who are old friends of mine, were in Pigtown with me many years ago, and some fabulous, a new generation of, of actors and actresses. We've got um, a wonderful composer and we've also got four musicians, I think. We've got dancers. I mean, it's a real, it's a kind of big, it's a big production. It's been short in terms of from you know from blank page to stage. It's only really been a few months that we kind of got the green light and decided that this is the time we were going to do it. So I think it was written in about three months. I normally take about two years. Um, the other thing is that most of my plays, certainly the last couple, have been historically based. Like the last one um, was about the Limerick Soviet, so I spent almost two years researching that, and so it was kind of historically accurate and based on real events. This is obviously very different from that, but like my, my instincts are kind of comedic. Even when I'm writing about serious subjects, I wind up inadvertently putting comedy in there and you know I used to write uh, Kill and Scully with Pat Short so I've, I've got a kind of a comedy track record and so this was an opportunity to to exercise that particular muscle thing it's been a rough year and a half for our industry for most of the people in the show myself included it's been a long time since we've worked oh oh father Tig oh father and also I guess it's a it's a privilege to be one of the first shows back you know, so we're we're hoping to raise the profile of the city, or to raise the spirits of the city, I guess. And I think there's a real eagerness for that. So I think people will be they'll be behind us very much. I think the audience will be enthusiastic. They'll be f- forgiving of anything that might possibly go wrong. Not that anything will go wrong, but you know, there's a real. I think there's a real sense that we're in this together. We're going on this adventure, and and you know, we're so up for it. And I hope the audience are too. Doing the shows like Running Away with the Circus which would be a dream come true for me. So, yeah, we want to put lots of elements in it and make it as, 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 as broad as possible. There's, there's no room in this play for... There's no subtlety or nuance. What are we going to do? 
it's big and it's broad and it's kind of in, in your face. Mike Finn there at the People's Park in Limerick. Louise McMahon was the reporter. Waiting for Poirot runs until August 1st. Booking at limetreetheatre.ie. And finally this time, it's back to the COVID front line with Jennifer Walsh. Life for the composer and artist seemed recently to be returning to musical action, but planning right now for promoters, performers and the bums who like to be on the socially distanced seats remains unpredictable, even for those who read plenty of science fiction. I'm a big fan of science fiction and of Ursula Le Guin in particular, and lately I've been rereading Le Guin's legendary novel The Dispossessed. First published in 1974, The Dispossessed tells the story of Shevek, a physicist from the cooperative slash anarchist planet Anares. Shevek has been brought to rival hyper-capitalist planet Uras because he has developed the principle of simultaneity, a breakthrough in physics that will allow simultaneous communication and exchange of matter between any two points in the universe. The Urasti want Shevek's principle of simultaneity for themselves because it will make them the most powerful force in the universe. I was supposed to play a festival in Germany last week, the Monheim Triennale. It's a new festival with a wonderful staff and vision. The opening edition was supposed to take place last year, but for obvious reasons was postponed to this year, and then, for further obvious reasons, was scaled down. Still, it was going to be a pretty fantastic prequel festival, bringing 16 artists from all over the world to bubble and play together. Germany currently has a travel ban in place for people coming from the UK. You can't get in unless you're a German citizen or resident, and even then there is a compulsory 14-day quarantine. Despite this, Monheim managed to secure an exemption for me. So last Thursday, I headed off to London City Airport for a flight to Dusseldorf. It was the first time I'd been in an airport for six months. It seemed unbelievable that I'd be able to travel. And it was. Despite the letters from the festival and the mayor of Monheim, despite the exemption from the Nord-Rhine-Westfalen ministry, I wasn't allowed board the plane. I went home. And the next morning, I headed back out to Heathrow, where the festival attempted to fly me to Frankfurt. I was at Heathrow for hours, getting yet another test before I attempted to check in, reading The Dispossessed all the while, which seemed pretty appropriate. And again, I was sent home. Travel. How are we going to solve it? We need something along the lines of Shevek's principle of simultaneity. The pandemic, the climate emergency. We need to think more sci-fi because it's the most apt lens to view the current moment through. Like it or not, sci-fi is our current mode. And at every step, we need to think through the implications of any solution. Who gains from it? 
and who loses? And thankfully, we have writers like Le Guin to show us how to begin. The latest from Jennifer Walsh there, and she'll be back with us in the autumn. But if you've missed any of her pieces for Culture File, there are playlists for both her Diary of a Plague Year and Things No Things series on the Culture File SoundCloud page. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more rampant checkpointization next week on Culture File every day at 6.10pm and in your Culture File Weekly next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.